Turn to Psalm 130, please. Psalm 130. Um, At the... The first part of our gathering, we talked about uh, the examined prayer, and we're kind of following that, we are following that format, um, kind of a service, I hope, done in the spirit of prayer, in the, and when I say prayer, I mean at the very base level, an awareness of God's presence and an interaction with him, what Jesus calls even eternal life, um, is this present and ongoing interaction with him in his kingdom. And if you're doing that, you are interacting with eternal life. You are, you are this is the stuff that um, makes life full and vibrant. And we'll be talking about that more. Uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, typically on Sunday mornings. We're going to be not there this morning. We'll be in Psalm 130. And then next week, we'll be talking about some special things because of the um, state of the church address and a projection of what we hope God will do in our church this coming year, and then we'll be jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount the following Sunday, so this will help us prepare the way for that. Um, The examined prayer, like I said, has four movements. There is, uh, and I would encourage you to do this often, Um, there is simply to remember, to ask the Spirit to bring up to you things that He's been doing in your life. Sometimes, um, like what Paul said, we need, we need him to show us the invisible things that we can interact with so that, um, so that we can know about them and, and partake in them and receive health and morrow to our souls through those things. So we ask him to, re, to bring up things for us to remember and we rejoice in those things. We make a point to say, God, I'm gonna rejoice in what you've done in my life. Uh, how many of you know that our brains typically gravitate naturally toward the negative? So it's a little bit more of an act of the will to bring up the positive. It's a dis, in fact, the early church would call this like gratitude and rejoicing a discipline, something that you've got to kind of put the clutch in and ram it into gear sometimes to make, to make you be thankful and grateful and to bring those things up to your mind. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, it won't be long as you keep doing that and keep bringing things up in your mind. It won't be long to where your heart and your soul will begin to take over and you'll begin to breathe it and feel it and um, receive the health from that. The third step is to repent. In this, we ask God to thank, uh, or excuse me, to remind us of the ways in which we've sinned previously. Um, perhaps in word and in deed, through negligence or weakness or even our own deliberate faults. Um, in our home group, we were talking about this last week, the power of just being honest with yourself. That really, God can work with an honest person. Uh, St. Augustine said, to thine own self be true. It's very, it's very true. If, you, if you're not willing to see your faults and bring them to God in a humble attitude, it's really not much that can be done. If you, if you, that's why confession and repentance is so important in the Christian faith. It's a way of cleansing the soul. We'll be dealing with that here in our, in our text this morning. And finally, we resolve, uh, we resolve in the coming year. In other words, we pledge to cooperate with God, with what he's going to do, whatever that might be. Um, we don't know, obviously, what 2024 has for us. Let's see, how do I turn this thing off? battery. I've got my battery on low battery modes for some reason, and it means it keeps going to sleep on me, and I don't like that. 
I don't want that. Oh, this is going to bother. Pause. I'm going to resolve to turn this thing off. And it's going to repent for even doing this in the first place. Because I will remember and I will rejoice. Let's see here. How do I do this? Let's see. Battery. Battery. Here we go. Low power mode. Off. Push. There you go. So, we resolve going forward to cooperate with whatever the Lord's doing in our hearts and whatever he's doing in our lives. As a family and as a church, we are going to study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the book of Matthew that will take us, to be quite frank with you, into 2025. (laughs) We're going to be here for a while studying the life of Jesus and what he says is the good life. What is the good life and what is the kingdom of God here and now? So, um, it's hard to get through to step four, to resolve, and it's even hard to rejoice sometimes unless we do the third step, and that is to repent, to deal with our things. And, you know, the new year is one of those times where we look back and we think of a lot of different things, but one of the things our souls tend to bring up is our regrets, the things that we're ashamed of, uh, the people that we've treated poorly, Um, the relationships that we perhaps have made worse or that are still unresolved or maybe uh, the dishonesty or habits that just just are are, will not go away um, no matter how hard we've tried those types of things there's aches that are still in our soul so when we start a new year it does no good for us to just pretend that those things are not there anymore like we just magically get a new slate in the new year we do but the, the, the Spirit of God want, and the Bible wants to deal with those things that are stopping us, that are hindering us from coming into that fullness and into that rejoicing. So think of this as a way, it's a good thing. We don't like dealing with sin, but it's very good. It's like removing a sliver. It's a, it's a health and healing kind of an exercise. These things cause a great deal of guilt and shame. And um, this psalm teaches us how to deal with that. So let me read this psalm to you. This is Psalm 130, and then we'll, di- we'll dive into it and we'll um, ask the Spirit to sift our hearts. This is Psalm 130, and a, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than a watchman waits for the morning. More than a watchman waits for the morning. Israel Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Father, would you, Spirit, sift through our hearts now. May we sense an interaction between us and you as we look into this psalm, and Spirit, would you please guide us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This psalm is all about the experience of intense guilt, um, failure, and shame. 
things that we all are, as humans, extremely familiar with. And it's the feeling of having your heart wrenched by a sense of failure or uh, liability or, just, or maybe just general unworthiness. Maybe it's not around something you've done, but about someone you are. There's a general sense of unworthiness. And the psalmist, we don't, uh, we don't know who the author is, he gives us an extremely vivid metaphor to describe these intense emotions. It's the idea of drowning. That's literally what the Hebrew word translated depths could be translated into drowning. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Verse two, I, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? So you've got this contrast between sinking and standing, being unstable and being stable. And you can really play with that in a lot of ways. Unhealthy versus healthy. Soundness versus being unsound. Balanced versus out of balance. That's really what he's playing with, this state of the heart, this state of your inner world being kind of out of whack and, and out of balance. And this is an image that comes up frequently in the Psalms. Let me read you another one. This is Psalm 40, one through two. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. Some of you know that we, our family, got to go to Hawaii for Christmas. We just got back on New Year's Day. And one of the highlights of this trip was there was this hike, um, a jungle hike, and you start at the top, you park your car, and you hike down through the jungle to between these two like sharp valleys to the very bottom, there's this waterfall, and it cascades into like these three pools. We, we found the Garden of Eden, it's there, and it's fine, nothing's changed. It's great, so, but on the way there, it's, it's raining, and the whole trail is this glorious experience of mud. It was so fun. Noble and I had a blessing. I think secretly Nicole had fun too. But um, maybe not when we tackled her in the mud. But after that, it was fine. No, but we did. We had so much fun. So you kind of, you kind of slide down, slip. There was people that would, there are people that did not research. There was people that were there in like uh, not hiking clothes and like heels and pumps. And, you know, we were like, ooh. And they would fall right in front of us. And we'd all have a, a fun laugh together. It was, it was super great and bonding. And then you get down and you, you wash off in this waterfall and you play and you frolic and then you've got to mud your way back out. It was so great. So I think of a slimy pit. Noble brought up, what if mud could sink you? And I was like, you know, that's a thing. There's some places where a quicksand, you get in mud and the more you struggle, the more you slip down into it and you're, you're drowning in this. That's the idea here. And then here's the contrast. He said, uh, uh, he set my feet on a rock, on a stable place and gave me a firm place to stand. And that's what I'm hoping, this is why I picked this passage, I'm hoping that going into 2024, we can have a stability about us. We can stand we can get rid of the things that are slippery, that are mucky, that are causing us to fall and um, slide down the mountain, so to speak. Here's another one. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. How uh, scary would that be? I sink in the miry depths where, no, where there is no foothold. 
I have come into deep waters and the floods engulf me. So what's going on here? The psalmist is describing a psychological or phenomenological state that feels like what it means to be lost at sea, drowning. If you give yourself just a moment to imagine that, you'll start, you'll start to feel the panic and the fear of that. If you give yourself just a moment to imagine what, it was, what it's like, perhaps, to be lost at sea with no options, uh, and all you see around you is just endless ocean, no one there to help, what's below me? I can't find anything. There's a sense of panic about this. This is what he's feeling. I'm going down. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm grasping, I'm lunging, and there's nothing to grab onto. I'm stuck, I'm in this bottomless ocean or this mud, and the more I kick, the more I panic, the more I sink. It's this feeling of being out of options, but what is the water that the psalmist is sinking in here? What, what ocean is he drowning in? And he says in our psalm, it's the ocean that, he, the ocean that he's drowning in is the ocean of guilt and shame. How do I know? Let's look at verse two. He says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. He calls God, you know, generally if you are drowning, you ask for help, not mercy. And then when we get to verse three, we realize exactly what he's talking about. He says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who could make it? He says that he can't stand because of the sense of weight of this record that's on him of his sins. He's talking about his guilt and his shame. He's talking about a sense of unworthiness, a sense of self-blame or deep failure, and he's, he can't find a grip because of this. It's, it's rendered him, you know, he's unable to move, he's unable to function in life. Now, guilt and shame, uh, let me just uh, give you a little brief history of this. Guilt and shame are two words in the Bible that have a little bit of overlap to them, but they paint together, they paint a full picture. If you were to study these two words in the Bible, you know, trace them through, all the way through, you'll find that the opposite, of the, uh, the opposite for the word guilt is the word innocent, and that makes a lot of sense. The reason is because when you're dealing with guilt, you're usually dealing with something specific. You know, like I broke a rule, a specific rule, something I shouldn't have done. It's very specific on what you've done. But the opposite for the word shame in the Bible, interestingly enough, is the word glory. Isn't that interesting? It's the word glory, which is something a lot more general and something more positive. The idea is, is that you and I were made for glory and we've fallen short of that. It penetrates deep to an identity. In shame, I don't feel bad about something I've done. That would be guilt, right? But in shame, I feel bad about something that I am. I've, or more specifically, I feel bad about something that I intuitively know I should be, but I am not. I was made for something, and I've fallen short of it. Something's wrong with, with me. See, in guilt, we're saying, here are the rules, and I broke them. But in shame, I'm drowning because I was inspired to be something. I know intuitively that I ought to be this kind of a human or this type of a person, and I have, I have failed to be that person. 
I can't be that person. I'm broken to be that kind of person. Shame is more general, it's more positive in that sense, and because of that, shame can be a lot, well, is a lot more devastating because it goes down to the core of who you are. So, there's a difference between guilt and shame, and yet there's a lot of overlap, as you can imagine. So if you steal something and then you get caught, you can feel both guilt and shame, right? You can feel guilty because I broke a rule, I stole something that wasn't mine, and that can lead to, what's wrong with me? I was supposed to be a person of honesty, a person of character, a person of integrity, and look at this now. Something's wrong, what caused me to do this? So the stealing not only covers you with guilt, but because you did something wrong, it's wrong to steal, and I did it. But on the other hand, it pounds you with shame because you thought I was, well, you, you have this realization, I thought I was stronger than that. Have you ever had a moment like that where you had this epiphany about yourself that you're not who you wanted to be or who you thought you were, perhaps? That's what we're dealing with. Now, it would be no surprise to me if, if we have a particularly hard time wrapping our minds around this because for hundreds of years now, the Western world that we live and breathe in and move in has been working very hard um, to unanchor morality from anything concrete or objective. Um, at some point, and for many reasons, and to be honest, some of those reasons very even understandable, guilt and shame were deemed unhealthy, psychologically dangerous for human health, so a major move was made to simply get rid of those feelings um, by making morality completely subjective, completely up to the individual. You know, what's wrong for you isn't wrong for me, therefore I don't have to feel guilty about that. Right? That's kind of how it goes. I have my reasons for what I do. You may not like them, but don't you dare impose your, impose your subjective moral code onto me, which, by the way, is in and of itself a objective moral code <laughs> when we say things like that. And because of that, there's really nothing to anchor our morals and our ethics to reality anymore. It's kind of free-floating in a way. And this causes, this has caused great internal confusion to the human psyche. It's very confusing. In other words, in our culture, any sense of right and wrong is said to be completely up to the individual's preferences, feelings, and viewpoints, all of which, by the way, are, are subject to change. My feelings change very often. Uh, my, my internal world is not stable. When I think something is right, I may change my mind about that. Um, and that is precisely one of the places where we get all caught up. So in the West, you get to decide what is right and wrong for you, and with maybe one caveat to that, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, which in and of itself is an illusion. We now know this um, this is scientifically documented at this point that there is no action that doesn't affect other people. It doesn't exist. We live in an illusory idea that we are islands, that what we do doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't respond to anyone else. I, a great example of this that sticks out in my mind is when uh, the, the Me Too movement hit, hit, hit our culture, when all of these movie moguls and, and men in power were abusing women, 
I'll never forget, and it was all coming out, and you know, if you don't know, Me Too was a, a place where people could say, it happened to Me Too. And it just, and rightfully so, gained traction, and it was this big thing of awareness. But I'll never forget, around that same time, I was at the store, I was in Safeway, and I was getting ready to check out, and that was around the same time that Hugh Hefner died. And I, it was such an incredible thing to me, because on the news, uh, in, you know, in the the checkout line, they have all these tabloids and news, and on one of them, uh, some other person had just been caught abusing somebody. I think it was the guy from the morning show, the news anchor. His face was right there, and then right next to that was a magazine, Time Magazine, that I think had named Hugh Hefner like the man of the year. Yeah, he was there in his robe and looking all, and it said, the man who, who unleashed the, the sexual morals of the West from their oppressive uh, morality or something like that. And it was so powerful to me because we, we live in a culture that says, hey, if you want to consume pornography, if you want to do those types of things, fine, do it. In fact, you should be free to do it as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. We now know that it absolutely does affect other people. It changes people's minds to think and view humans in a certain kind of way. This is now, you don't have to be a Christian to know this. This is now um, well documented that pornography causes the breakdown of family. It ruins marriages. It hurts children. And at its worst, some people become so deluded that they think a woman is asking, is propositioning them when she's simply being nice and kind. Because in the pornographic world, they paint this world that women want to do these types of things that in reality, they just don't. They, they don't operate that way. I, I was counseling a young man at one point that was dealing with this, and we went to a Starbucks. And I remember we sat down and he said, see, it's so hard to stay pure when women like that are are, you know, flirting all the time. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, the, the barista, you know? And, I, and he, she said hi to me, and she definitely was like checking me out. And I looked over at her, and every single person that came through her line, she was like, hi, how are you today? Do you have any plans? What are you doing today? She's just a nice person. And I was like, she's just a nice person. She doesn't, she does, you know, pornography does affect the way you think, 100%. There is no such thing. As, a, as something that you do that doesn't affect other people. And here's what I will say. 78% of the rest of the world know this to be true. It is a Western phenomenon that thinks that we have come to the people that we are by ourselves. You are, uh, according to sociologists today, you are who you are because of, mostly because of the people you were around. We like to think we came to this conclusion by ourselves. It's just flat out not true. And the Bible understands this. Therefore, what we do affects other people. And this is where we get into trouble in, in, in the West, especially when it comes to the breakdown of morality. It's like taking a compass and throwing it overboard when you're sailing. And you just say, we're sailing, and all that matters is that we're sailing. And we say, well, where are we going? How are we going to get there? What are we going to use to get there? We're this is not sailing, this is just getting lost. And that is where we're at 
when it comes to our morality in the West, we are getting more and more lost. People are finding that although they can sidestep guilt perhaps by saying, well, my moral standards aren't the same as your moral standards, so don't put those on me, we still can escape a sense of shame within us as a culture. We're a very shameful culture, a sense that we're not what we ought to be, but we have nothing to, because we have nothing to anchor what that ought to be on. It's just up to you. Whatever I'm supposed to be is up to me, and that might change, because that's pretty fluid most of the time. Or if what I'm supposed to be is anchored in society, then that's even more destabilizing, because now I'm at the mercy of a billion subjective opinions of what I'm supposed to be. Do you understand? That's why we're extremely confused. We're, we're confused internally, and we're confused as a society. Either way, we still feel a sense of insignificance and liability. We feel vacant. We don't feel weighty. This is the idea of glory. It's actually a value word, a worth word. It's what's valuable is the glory, the import, what's important. We don't feel that. We don't feel like we matter. We don't, we don't like who we are anymore because who are we even supposed to be anyway? The well-known uh, sociologist, a man that I've been reading for a while, his name's Philip, Philip Reef. This is he grouped human cultures and societies into three categories that he called first, second, and third worlds. But he's not talking about this economically, the way we normally think of like a third world country as a very poor country. He's talking about this socially. For Reef, first and second worlds are civilizations that believe in something outside themselves. So uh, like a supernatural force or the gods or maybe a sacred uh, like code of some sort, like, a, like, you know, like the matrix, an algorithm that makes everything run or whatever those things might be. And they use this, they anchor themselves to this to justify their moral laws and their society's way of life. It gives them something stable. They may be confused about a lot of things, but we all agree about this or these things. Because of their ethics and morals and their way of life, they, it carries a divine authority. It also carries accountability and bearing the direction of that culture. In the, in the Old Testament, this is one of the things that made Israel so different, is that they were actually accountable to their God. And the nations around them, they served gods, but their kings and their authority figures, they could do whatever they wanted without recourse. Israel came and they had Torah, they had a law, and they had prophets that would come to kings and say, hey, you can't do that, because this is what the law says. This bedrock truth that we're anchored to, you can't, you can't treat the poor that way. There's an anchor to it. Third world societies, Reef goes on to say, like, like ours, have in Reef's words, here's a quote, abandoned the notion of the sacred order so so the interdicts of the first and second world cease to have any plausibility because they lack any justification beyond themselves. He goes on to write almost prophetically. He's not a Christian. He goes on to write almost prophetically based on his reading of history that so-called third world societies are doomed to fail precisely because they lack the foundation outside of themselves to anchor their values to. The historian Carl Truman 
commented on Reef's analysis, and here's what he says about it. He says, quote, the culture with no sacred order therefore has the task for Reef, the impossible task, of justifying itself only by reference to itself. Simply put, if this world is all there is, moral discourse cannot find its justification or root its authority in anything that lies beyond itself. And Carl, Re- or, excuse me, Carl Truman, this historian, said there is no civilization in history that survived that, that's had that kind of ethic or moral setup where they just base it on themselves because it's so fluid. There's no anchor. We look inwardly for some sense of meaning and brazenly manipulate and even violently alter the material world to match our subjective ethos. Second and th- first and second worlds say, okay, we're going to take this anchor that's outside of us and to some degree, we're gonna change our insides to match that. Third world say, I'm gonna take what's inside of me and bring it out and force the outside world to adjust to what I want it to be. Why? Why do we do this? In order to deal with the fact that we feel like we're drowning in insignificance. That's why. We feel a sense of, I need to prove myself. It comes out in ambition, it comes out in uh, creativity, it comes out in a lot of different ways, but this drive to success, this drive to be something special, comes from an anchorless soul that says, I need to matter, but I don't know how. So we're driven. We are a driven people. We're driven to be something. We're driven to feel anchored to something. We're driven for someone to say, this is where you fit. This is how it matters. And it's, according to the Bible, it's got to be from the outside. We cannot give this to ourselves. We need to be courageous. We need to be bold. We need to be creative. We need to do all these great things. We need to be the best. And yet, we all know that we fall short of this glory that we're made for. So we're drowning in shame. And therefore, according to the psalm and many psalms like it, we're all sinking. Okay, so what's to be done? What do we do about this? What do we, as followers of Jesus, do about this going into the into? 2024. What do you do with your sense of shame? What do you do with your sense of insignificance? What do you do with your sense that you still haven't landed? I've met so many people, myself included, that late in life still feel unanchored. People that have said, now I'm 40, now I'm 60, now I'm 70, and I still don't know who I am. That is a product, that's, that is the, uh, a product that our Western world uniquely can produce in people because we don't inform our people. We leave it up to us. So what's, what do we do about this going forward? This text tells us that a rope has been thrown down to us, a rope from the outside, an anchor to something real, to the reality of God himself, to the very character of God. That's what you need when you're drowning, right? Right? A rope that's anchored to something stable. You you don't need someone to like to jump in. You don't need, you know what I mean? You don't need someone to jump in after you. You'll just sink faster. A lot of people say, hey, in our world, you're drowning in guilt and shame? Me too. Let's just talk about that. Oy vey. And it it becomes a depressing conversation 
real fast, like two people, let's just drown together. And as great as community is in talking about this, it's great, this text gives us something more. We need a branch or something reliable that's tied to something anchored, and that is what this psalm gives us. Look at verse three, it says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? The ancient Hebrew person, and like I said earlier, 78% of the world today has an anchored morality. It's anchored to something. According to this passage, the rope that God uses to save us from drowning is tied to an objective moral standard. And you guys, this is good news, not bad, even though this has been abused by people, of course, in the past which has caused this knee-jerk reaction in the West, in its root and in its pure form, this is good. This is a good thing. According to verse, uh, verse three, there is a record being kept. The point is not if there's a record, the point, the if in this uh, verse is if it's being kept. But there is a record. The one thing that the psalmist is not denying is that there's a record. And, um, and if God was to keep it, if he was to count it, if he was to use it to judge us, who could stand? Therefore, the first thing that he's grabbing hold of is that there is an objective standard by which I can judge my guilt, and this is very good. Let me, let me explain how this works. When you feel guilt or shame, in that moment, you have to make a decision, right? Think about it, think about it. Remember that ping? that you get, that you've, you've done something wrong, right there you've got, a mo you've got a decision to make. Either you're going to resist it or you're going to agree with it, right? And it, it, this happens in a nanosecond. Think of a skirmish between you and your husband or you and your wife or think of something that you might have said. I mean, even the smallest things, your conscience goes, Whoop. you feel it, Whoop. right? Decision time. I'm sure, and this is why Ignatius Loyola came up with the examine prayer. At the end of the day, he would stop and he would ask the Lord to bring all of those oops up to his mind and he would, with his brain, analyze it according to a standard, God's conscience. I'm sure everyone, now, I'm sure everyone here agrees that you, you must not resist all guilt, Right? There's plenty of people that say, especially in our culture, well, guilt in and of itself is just bad. It's a bad thing, and people should just never feel guilty because it's, a psych it's psychologically damaging, and it's bad because moral standards are subjective. Therefore, if you feel guilty, it's a subjective thing. It's a psychological thing to get rid of, but we can't, we can't believe all that, can we? If we say, resist all guilt because all moral standards are subjective, let's just go into some uh, logic class here, all moral standards are subjective, that very statement, you guys, is a moral standard and therefore subjective and therefore by its own merits ought to be resisted and thrown out. It doesn't work. So on the one hand, we have to agree that we shouldn't resist all guilt, but... On the other hand, I think we have to agree that we shouldn't agree with all guilt either, should we? Right? How do we do this? Some of the nicest, most giving people that I know are driven by guilt. You know what I mean? 
People that are always trying to help out, help others, serve, be selfless. And look, it's great, but it's because, we're, it's because you're guilty. You're trying to make atonement. So it um, turns out Jiminy Cricket is not right all the time. Don't always let your conscience be your guide. It can be messed with. So we must not always resist guilt, but on the other hand, we must not always agree with guilt, so what are we supposed to do? And the answer is to have something to think about it, to compare it to. It's a good thing to have something objective that I can say, okay, I don't have to listen to this feeling. Oh, I do need to listen to this feeling. If you don't have that, you won't know how to deal with your guilt. If you, verse three, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? A better translation of this verse is if you, Lord, looked at sins. If you looked at sins. And what he's really saying is the eyes of God or the way God sees things are the only way of looking at life that matters. That's what he's saying. The way God looks at situations, the way God judges something, the way he looks at something, that's what matters. How does God see things? According to his own character. He is. He is the standard. He is truth. He is love. He is goodness itself. He is power. He is right. In verse 7, he says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. How, how, did, how do they know? How do they know what God's character is? That's the next question. How do we know what it is? Well, God, he revealed it to them. The word unfailing love here is a, is a very important word throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. It's the word chesed in Hebrew. Can you guys say that? Chesed. You're gonna have to spit on the back of the head of the person in front of you. That's okay, safe place. Chesed. And it means unfailing love. And interestingly enough, to the Jewish mind, this first appeared in the, ten, in the Decalogue, in Exodus chapter 20. It's embedded within this moral standard for human flourishing, the Ten Commandments. Right in the middle of it, it says, for God is a jealous God, but he is also loving, forgiving people. So he's got this moral standard that he's giving to his people by which they can flourish. The Ten Commandments. Really, I mean, I don't know, as much as we don't abide by them in our country, and we, you know, I, the Christian world likes to get after the Supreme Court and con for move, removing it off their walls, I personally don't know of any church, conservative or liberal, that lives by the Ten Commandments in our country. I think we're all, I think, and yet, I think we can all agree that if even a mild attempt at the Ten Commandments would make our, our society a lot better of a place, Yeah? Is this even, thou shalt not murder. Do we need to argue about that? Thou shalt not steal. It seems pretty, I mean, right? Don't commit adultery. Like, imagine a world where, no, where there is no pornography. Imagine that. Imagine a world where there weren't 30 million people, women and children, right now, held against their will in this country because of exploitation. Imagine that, a world without that. Do we need to argue about that? Be a lot better of a place. There is this standard. 
And in the middle of that, he says, why is the standard here? Because I am a God of unfailing love. Chesed. How the Israelites do. Good or bad? Not so great, right? In fact, as the story goes, when Moses was up on the mountain and God was giving him these, these laws for flourishing, for human greatness, that's what they were for. As Moses is up there doing this, the Israelites are down below breaking all of the commandments before Moses could even get, deliver them. In the middle of their conversation, God says, go back down, for these people are a stiff-necked people, and I don't like them right now. That's putting it mildly. To put it literally, God said, step away from them because I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to start a new nation through you. Why? Because there is a standard of greatness. There is a glory that you were made for. And they fell short of it. Why else? Because of what God had just done. Um, what, what did this generation see? Think of this generation of Israelites. What did they see? Okay, they saw the, they, okay, they saw the Red Sea <laughs> split in two. They saw this with their eyes, boom, split in two. They walk through and then they see it boom, crash down on their enemies. What else did they see? What? The plagues. What's it, name one of the plagues? Toads and frogs. Okay, can you imagine? We're talking about toads and frogs by the hundreds of thousands crawling up out of the Nile River through their water supplies, in their homes, on their faces. This, the Israelites saw this thing happen. What about the locust one? So, so many bugs. Just think of it. So many bugs. They could not see the sun. It got dark. And then it ate all their stuff. So this economic crash because these bugs ate all their stuff. And they saw it when Moses said it was going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And then it came. This is the stuff that they saw. What else did they see? Anyone else? Okay, yeah, there's a good one. Okay, imagine uh, Elliot Bay all of a sudden turning to pure blood and fish dying in the stench. This is the things that they saw. And later they would see, what well, we're hungry, and this bread appears, and they eat. This is this generation, and they come to this mountain, and God says, look what you've seen. I love you. I think you can know that by now. I love you. I've rescued you from abject slavery. And why? Just to set you free? No, 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 no. To be my special people. It was a beautiful thing. I love you. I've chosen you. You are my special people. Would you cut covenant with me? And they say, yeah. Moses goes up. And what do they do? It would be one scholar that just stuck in my mind says it would be like getting married and on your honeymoon, 
coming back to the hotel room after getting water or something and finding your newlywed spouse in bed with a stranger. No wonder God is angry. No wonder he says, get away. I'm gonna destroy these fools and start a new nation with you. Moses goes to work. Moses says, no, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. Remember, you did all this so that the world would know who you are. That would, that's on repeat through the book of Exodus. Now they will know who I am. Now the Egyptians will know who I am. Now you will know who I am. Now the world will know who I am. And Moses ap appeals to Yahweh's reputation. He says, if you kill them now, everyone's just gonna think, oh, you, he's, what a weird God. He set them free to slaughter them in the, in the, in the desert. And it moves, the, God, it moves the needle a little bit. God says, fine, I'll let you guys go to the promised land. I'll even send an angel to go to escort you, get you there safely, but I'm not going with you. And Moses goes back to work and says, God, no, it, the promised land is not the promised land if you're not there. We are supposed to be a Yahweh people. That's the whole point. We're supposed to be a with God people. That's how the world will know us, that we're with God people. And if you're not there, it doesn't make any sense. And God said, okay, because I found favor with you, Moses, which is a very important theological point, because God found favor with someone else, he was gracious to sinners. And that's where we get this famous verse. This is the most repeated verse in the Bible about Yahweh's character. It is something that you should highlight, put lipstick around it, point to it, make a neon sign. It's very important. This is Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now listen, with that story in mind, listen to this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Let me ask you, merciful and gracious to who? What's the context of this? golden calf worshiping sinners, slow to anger and abounding, and here's our word, chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness. Who's he have steadfast love towards? S calf worshiping sinners that broke every law there was before it was even delivered. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. This is who I am. This is what Yahweh means. That there is a standard for right and wrong, and I love you anyway. Even though you've broke it, I'm going to love you anyway. Thank God, yes. This is the God we serve, absolutely. See, in your parents' eyes, you might feel ashamed because you've never lived up to their dreams and ideas for your life. This is how this is so helpful. Let me get super practical. They maybe wanted you to marry someone else or achieve a certain GPA or go down a certain path in life and you didn't and now you feel ashamed. Now you feel ashamed. Well, that's in your parents' eyes. The eyes. But are those in Yahweh's eyes? Are those things sin in Yahweh's eyes? No, so you can throw them away. You can say, no, I'm not gonna listen to that guilty feeling. I'm gonna apply my mind to truth. See, now you have some power to throw it out because you have divine authority, a standard that you can relieve your conscience with. On the other hand, 
What if you're sleeping around with your boyfriend or having adultery or whatever, and you say, well, I love this person, and everyone's doing it, and I have needs, and you know, that's all of those types of things. Okay, what does God think, though? If it's sin in God's eyes, then no matter how you feel, confess it. Say, Lord, I'm aligning myself with you. When you've got God's eyes, when you've got what he says is uh, in the prophets and the apostles, you've got an objective standard. And I love this. Look at, um, I have to read this one to you. This is Paul, Paul applying this to his own life. Listen to Paul's thing here. I think going into 2024, wouldn't it be amazing if we could come into this way of thinking? Look what he says. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. I don't care. Very little. Right? And then, that's fine. We all, we have, some some of us have personalities like that. I don't care. I don't care what anyone thinks. Fine. But look at what else he says. Indeed, I don't even care what I think. I don't even care what I think. Look it. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, he says. Here's what he's saying. First of all, I don't care what you think. And that's kind of, that's a little bit of freedom. We would all like to be, I'm sure we would all like to be free of what other people think of us. I know a lot of us get, get really tripped up on that, right? That's some, but look, it gets even more radical. See, the modern secular person will say, it doesn't matter what your parents think. All that matters is what you think. That's what they will say. But that still weighs you down with shame. Maybe it gets rid of guilt, but not shame and that feeling of insignificance. So Paul says, I I don't care what you think, but guess what? I don't even care what I think either. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. There's plenty of people whose consciences are clear. They don't feel bad, but that doesn't make them innocent. He says, it's the Lord who judges me. See, if you believe that there is a moral law of God, if you believe that somewhere there is a set of eyes and that no one else's eyes matter, and he's, he's the absolute standard of right and wrong, that's good news. It means you're not just free from what others say about you, but you're even free about how, how you might feel one way or the other. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, famous mathematician and philosopher he, and Christian, he got this. He says this, the consciousness of sin is the essential condition of understanding Christianity. In other words, what we were talking about in our home group, self-awareness, honesty. The consciousness of sin is is the, the essential condition of understanding Christianity. In other words, the ability to know if you're sinful and guilty and give it to God and be able to do something with it that's intelligent and that actually works. He's saying this, this is a, a feature of Christianity. This is the very proof, he goes on to say, of Christianity's being the highest religion. No other religion has given such a profound and lofty expression of our significance. What is that? That we are sinners. He's saying that an objective law proving that you're a sinner is a good thing. It shows you who you are. It humbles you that you're drowning that we're guilty, who can stand? You know where, you know, sin gets you, gets you to the address of God. Do you know what God's address is? I'm being facetious, but I, I think it'll, you'll get the point across. 
God's address is at the end of you. You'll always find God, always, at the end of yourself. Sin gets you there. And if you can't confess your sin, if you just aren't brave enough to even go there, to think about it, it can eat you alive. How did the Israelites do? Well, they failed miserably. But now, he says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Why would he be telling them to hope in the Lord? Who are they hoping in? Why is, he, why is there a sense, why is he telling them to hope in the Lord? Because he knows God's character and that God is love and God will forgive. We hope in what we know. Hope, or what he says here, waiting for the Lord, um, like a watchman waits for the dawn. In the Bible, hope is what is the basis for your future. You need to know that. In the Bible, hope is what is the basis for your future. And what he's getting at is simply this. How do you deal with the sense of shame in you? How do you deal with the sense that you need to be courageous, but you're not? How do you deal with that? The answer is that, are you ready for this? The answer is that you're already hoping in something else. You are waiting for something. This is where the third step comes in, in repentance. We say, if I get that, if I do that, if I achieve that, then I will matter. If I get another award, if I get out of this problem, then I will matter. See, no one comes out of the womb feeling naturally significant. Everyone's got this sense of insignificance, no matter what your upbringing. For some, it's better, or some, it's worse. And at some point, we start to hope in something to get out of it. If I could just do this, if I could just be driven toward this, if I can just accomplish this, if I can be known for this, if I can get this, then I will feel significance again. It could be career or money or some, someone giving you a lot of attention or social justice or family or whatever it is. This is what I'll be known for. This is the, this, I'm sinking and now I will stand once I have this. There's a hundred different ways, but the fact is that our functional hope is placed somewhere. Did you know that? Your functional hope is operating well this morning. It's in one or a million things or people. And if you're going to start to sink, you can't just say, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, God. Have you noticed that? That doesn't work. Have you noticed that? That's what I did as a young Christian. Just remember God loves me. Just remember God loves me. Just remember God loves me. It doesn't work that way. I, I, don't, I, need, I don't just need a standard. I need a savior. I've already got a savior whether through my career or my accomplishments or whatever, or my wife, I need to fire that God and get and reach out to the one from heaven that's reaching out to me. It's called repentance. I stop putting my hope here and I put my hope in him. What is that for you? So for example, if you're, gray, if you're a student and your grades are your God, then grades, in a sense, are cursing you when you don't get good ones. It's going to ping that conscience. 
If my family is my real God, then the fact that my children may not like me will curse me. When someone says, well, I just can't forgive myself. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Do you know what they're, what they're really saying? They're saying my real God hasn't forgiven me. I know God forgives me, but the one I'm really putting hope in, I can't forgive myself. This is what, why the step of repentance is so important. We repent. If you're feeling like you can't forgive yourself, it's probably because you have some standard upon yourself that was never meant to be there in the first place, that you're thinking, if I can reach that, then I'll stand again. I can feel okay about myself. What that means is you have to look underneath all of your bad feelings and say, what is it that I have looked at to my redemption? This is the exercise I wanna practice with us. Before we take communion, scan your, what are you putting your hope in going into 2024? What do you feel? If I had that, I'd be stable. If I had that, I'd be a, a, I'd be a little bit more in balance. If I could do this and then repent, I wanna put my hope in God, his character, his unfailing love. He himself will redeem Israel from their sins. See, the thing about the Psalms is that they have a basic idea, but look, he gets real specific. He's able to look into the future and say, God will redeem from our sins. He's talking about Jesus, of course. Jesus in himself. How does, how does God keep his standard and also be chesed, unfailing love? The answer is in Jesus. Jesus came, he lived the perfect Life. He fulfilled, as we're going to learn about in two weeks, he fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. He accomplished it perfectly in himself. And then he took the judgment that you and I deserve. Every way that we failed, he was, God punished him. Justice was served on that cross so that in the cross it shows that God is both just and chesed unfailing love. He will punish sin, and yet he can be gracious to us golden calf worshiping sinners down here. Only there is a clear conscience. Only in that is a stable ground. Only in this table and what it represents can you find stability going into 2024. I want to give us a moment. We have a few moments left. Not many, but we have a few. I want to give us a moment. Would you be brave enough to let the Spirit search you? What are, what's your hope in? Can you repent of it? Can you let go of that and cling on to this God who sacrificed for you because he loved you so much? Can you say, I'm gonna, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and his righteousness, nothing less, not my performance, not my achievements, on his blood and his righteousness. Then, and only then, can we move into the future with the fourth step, resolve. I'm forgiven, I'm loved always. It's unfailing, steadfast love has said. I can resolve that this 2024, I am going to cooperate I'm going to walk and participate with what the kingdom of God is doing in me. I'm going to interact with 
presently and ongoingly the kingdom of God that is as close to me as the air on my skin. Amen? Amen.